You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Preventing family squabbles over an inheritance may be next to impossible, but there's plenty you can do ahead of time to minimize those disagreements. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Today, I welcome estate planning attorney Jules Haas, who has some advice for those bequeathing their assets and for those expecting to inherit them. So Jules, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Hello, how are you today? Thank you very much for uh, inviting me, and it's uh, a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. I've seen so many people and some close friends of mine fighting over their inheritance. And I've seen families split apart. And I always wonder, why wasn't this set up in advance to avoid, you know, children fighting? So that's why I wanted to invite you onto the show today to just give me some advice. When a parent writes a will or even has a trust, how can that be challenged such that the family starts fighting after you've gone? Okay. So let me try to uh, put it all in perspective for you. You know, your comments are, are really well taken, and it really goes beyond just people fighting when somebody dies. I'm a New York attorney, and I practice here in New York. So the statements that I make and the advice that I give is specific to New York, but it has general application probably throughout the country, although, you know, I don't practice in other states, but the concepts are pretty much the same. So the most important thing that you mentioned is to plan ahead. Obviously, if you have a will or a trust or whatever it is you put in place, then it gives uh, writing and an expression of what your intentions are supposed to be. If you do not do that, then like in New York, and I'm sure in most places, a person's assets and their estate go by what we call the statutes, operation of law, you know, the way the intestacy rules apply in every state. So once a person puts to writing what they want, it doesn't necessarily mean that it can't be challenged. You know, you can't close the uh, courthouse doors, so to speak, to anyone that comes in. But the reality is that if it's done properly and it's thought out and it's done, you know, professionally, then the likelihood of anyone challenging a will or a trust or any other document is a lot less than if you have nothing at all or it's not done well or it's done in a haphazard manner. And of course, challenging a will and doing all of these things in court is a very complicated process. And when you go to do these things, these are the things that you'll sort of learn about and educate yourself about so you can try to guard against. And, you know, depending on the nature of your family, uh, there's more or less likelihood of someone challenging a will and depending upon, of course, what you put in into the document. So if you disinherit someone who has a very large expectation of receiving something, then there's more likelihood that that person might challenge a document and you want to take steps possibly to safeguard against that. So even if you have a trust and even if you've recorded that, someone can challenge it, right? Right. You cannot stop someone from going to court and challenging anything that they want to challenge. That doesn't mean that they win, and it doesn't mean that they have a valid basis upon which to challenge it. But as everyone knows today, 
in our society, which is very litigious. Everybody sues over everything. Uh, you can't basically stop someone who has a legal right, who has standing to challenge a will, let's say, if they have standing to do that. You know, not just anybody can challenge a will. You have to be a person who would benefit, have a financial interest, at least here in New York, from that challenge. But could you stop them from doing it? No. Um, if you want a hands-on example, I can give you one or two. Uh, sure. I mean, I just, it's so sad to me when I see these families fighting over money when, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Sometimes they never even speak with each other again after it. Yeah, but, you know, they take on all different forms. So, for instance, I just recently finished a case up within the last year where the decedent, uh, whose estate I represented in this will contest, uh, had a very substantial estate, and he disinherited his two sons. In particular, he disinherited one son, who he had very little contact with over the years, who he was estranged from, who he had no contact with for decades, and who, in fact, because the son felt that the dad was going to disinherit him during the son's life and during the dad's life, the son made threats against the dad and his second wife, you know, his, his, his new wife. So the dad actually put in his will, I disinherit my son because of the fact that he threatened me and my wife. You know, not exactly those words, but to that effect, actually in the will. Did that stop the son from contesting the will? Of course not. So you have to go through a whole court case to get those objections thrown out, even though, even on the face of it, they appear to be baseless. Mm -hmm. So that's just one extreme example of clearly this is what the deceit wanted, but clearly you can't necessarily stop things from happening if someone has a right to do that. Sure. Well, what are some suggestions for, I would say many of our listeners are going to be the inheritees. They're probably over the next decade going to inherit property from their parents and probably don't want to go into a battle with their siblings or other family members. So what kind of advice do you have for them to make sure their parents or grandparents have everything set up properly? Okay. Well, the most important thing is that the person who is the property owner, the you know older generation, seeks professional advice so they understand what they're doing. Uh, many times the people who are inheriting aren't involved in that. So, and, and if, for instance, if, uh, if you have a situation of um, an older couple and then they have children, my clients are going to be the older couple. I'm going to listen to what they tell me to do. And in fact, the younger children are really shouldn't be overly involved in the process because then it'll look like they're influencing what's going on. So it really has to be the person whose will is being done, who makes the decisions and has control over the process. And they should seek the proper advice, provide all the information about assets and beneficiaries and needs and desires so that the plan that they put into place can be effectuated and that all of the people involved in that plan, if the time comes, such as the attorney who drafts the document or supervises its execution or the attesting witnesses, all of those people clearly see that the person signing these papers understands what they want, is able to communicate that, and 
the document actually reflects, you know, a person who is making, you know, an actual concerted decision as to what they want to do on that particular day in executing these documents. So that would be the most important thing to encourage anyone, whether it's a young person or an old person, to go out and make sure that they do their due diligence, make sure that they take the steps necessary so things are done properly and in order. And everybody knows, not everybody, but the people that they want to know what occurred, understand where their will is kept, you know, what assets they have. And they can certainly discuss that with their family members as well. But a will is not enough, right? It still might go to probate without a trust? So what you need to sort of understand is the difference between a will and a trust. And I'm going to use the word trust in a very loose, loose way. So a will, and again, I'm talking about New York, but pretty much, you know, general application. A will is going to control assets that are in your name alone. So if you have a bank account, real estate, whatever it is in your name, the will says where that goes. In order for the will to be effectuated when someone dies, it needs to go through probate. Some people go ahead and say, well, I don't want the will to be probated. I want to avoid probate, which you know, may or may not be necessary depending on the circumstance. And they take all of their assets and they put them into a trust. Now, the most common form of that trust that we're talking about here is a revocable trust where the person who puts the property into the trust can revoke it, can control it, can do whatever they want with it. When that person dies, the trust is self-effectuating and the property goes to whoever the trust says it goes to and the substitute trustee makes those dispositions. You don't need to go into court in order to have the trust validated. But the trust isn't, isn't immune from attack. So if a family member feels that the trust and the creation of the trust is subject to undue influence, or in some other way is invalid because of the circumstances surrounding its creation, that trust can be attacked just as well as a will can. It's a different procedure, and there's a different way to, you know, to go about doing it. But just because you put something in a trust doesn't make it immune from being subject to somebody saying, well, you know, this person was 95 years old, they were suffering from uh, dementia, they were being influenced by the person, you know, the, the nurse's aide who was living with them or the daughter or son that was living in the house with them. And, you know, my mother, my father never would have left everything to them if they actually knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, you, you can attack that the same way you can attack assets that are held, you know, outside of any of these things. Let's say you have a joint bank account. Uh, this is really the most common problem that occurs is that if you have an account such as a joint bank account or even real estate held jointly in a named beneficiary on retirement funds or other financial accounts, right, those assets go automatically to the person. No will, no trust, no nothing. And a lot of times what happens is that you have people that are living or involved with the older person, you know, closely, and that person says, Oh, you know, I'll put my name on, you know, put your name on and this way you'll be able to help me out and you know, the other people in the family, they live in California, they live, you know, 100 miles away from New York, wherever it might be. And when I die, my will's going to say everything goes to everybody equally. But that doesn't happen because the person whose name is on the account automatically gets everything when the person dies. Mm. You can attack, you know, and, and, there, and then in that case, 
the people who are trying to get the money back have to go into court and say, listen, this account was created because of undue influence or whatever. Uh, they didn't really understand what they were doing. So it creates all kinds of problems. This, is, this happens all the time. People do not understand the ramification of putting someone else's name on something for convenience and having it disrupt their plan. So it's very, very, very common and to understand how your assets are situated and how they're owned in order for your plan to be effective, you know, when something happens to you. Oh, very good. Now, what about a surviving spouse? Is there anything they need to know to make sure that they don't have a whole bunch of paperwork to deal with in, in addition to the grieving? Well, again, you know, a surviving spouse is going to have to deal with all of these issues. If there's a will, most likely they'll be named as the executor and they have to probate the will. Um, if there's a trust, they may be named as the trustee. So depending on the way assets are set up, they may have to deal with this. They, there may be all of the assets in joint names between the husband and the wife, which would make life easy, and then everything automatically goes to the surviving spouse. Sometimes a surviving spouse is disinherited entirely. Their name is left off, who knows what. And there's a lot of circumstances in which that occurs, either because it's done intentionally or unintentionally in the second marriage, who knows. So under the law in New York, and which is probably applicable in other parts of the country as well, the surviving spouse has what we call a right of election, a right to elect to take at least a portion of a person's estate. So you can't disinherit your spouse. The spouse essentially in New York has a right of election for a third of an estate. So uh, you can inherit anyone else. You can disinherit your children. You can disinherit grandchildren, anybody you want. But you can't really disinherit your spouse. They have a right to come in and make a claim. So if all of your assets are held jointly with, you know, party A, and there's nothing to go to the spouse, the spouse could come in and say, well, I'm entitled to at least a third of all that stuff. And again, that happens very often with retirement funds and second marriages. And again, sometimes intentionally where people leave a, a spouse off you know, for various, various reasons. Well, a lot of our listeners are trying to get as many home loans as they can. So oftentimes one spouse will take the loan and then the other spouse takes another loan so they can get up to 20. Fannie and Freddie allow 10 loans per person. So if a spouse has 10 properties in their name and the other spouse has 10 in their name, how should title be held to make sure that the process is somewhat streamlined if one of them should pass? Well, it's really a hard question to answer because there is no... Um, cookie cutter type of way to own property. You can own property in your individual name or, and, and at that point, the, a will will say where it goes. If you own it jointly, as I discussed earlier, it'll automatically go to the joint owner. Um, if you have an investment property, a lot of times folks own that investment property in, let's say an LLC or a small corporation. And then the owner of that corporation or the owners are going to be the people who control the property. So if a husband and wife are joint owners of the membership interest in the LLC, then obviously that membership interest is going to go to the husband or the wife, and they'll continue to own the property, which is the asset of that corporation. And if they're individual owners, then obviously that interest under the LLC of the corporation is going to pass pursuant to their will. So there are a lot of different variations and you really have to sit down with your advisors and understand what the nature of your ownership interests are 
so you can determine what's best for you. And it's really a, a combined decision between the husband and wife, so they understand who owns what and you know how they'll control this property if something happens to the other one. It just brings to mind, well, first of all, if you want it to be easy and you're taking title in your own name, it sounds like getting the joint title is the best way. It may be. <laughs> it may or it may be, but it may not work for everyone for right. very, you know, for, for reasons. Yeah. You know, for instance, let's say you have one of the spouses, uh, let's say it's a second marriage and one of the spouses it's a second marriage for. Well, if everything is joint with the current spouse, which is the second spouse, essentially the second spouse is going to get everything. So that person may not want that to happen. They might want to write a will and say, I want to leave 50% to my children of my first marriage mm-hmm. right. and the balance to my current spouse. But if you have a joint, it won't work that it way. Doesn't work. Oh. So you've got to understand what you own and how you want it to go. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, if you want to disinherit those kids, you may want to leave a joint to the current spouse. You know, <laughs> the variations on the theme, you know, you can imagine. Right. So, and people, and I'm just talking about, you know, second wives and whatever, but you may have friends, you may have charities, you may have loads of aunts and uncles and nieces and nephews and, you know, who knows what. So you may have like a whole list of people that you want to get something. If you do it jointly, then you're basically excluding it because once the person dies, the joint owner owns it, they can do what they want with it. They can give it to their own family. They can spend it. They can remarry and give it to their new spouse. Who knows what? You, can, you have to think about what's going on and what you want. And that would be the same with syndications. We have lots of people investing in our syndications. And oftentimes one spouse will invest in their self-directed IRA, another in their self-directed IRA. And I know there's all kinds of different rules around the inheritance of that, but just Mm -hmm. any advice that you would give to people investing in passive projects like that? Again, the basic advice, and it's really simple. Once you decide you're making an investment in something, you should understand how that investment is owned. If you're owning it in your own right and you want to have it go pursuant to some estate plan, you have to understand what the rights are with respect to that ownership interest. And if you can control that ownership interest pursuant to your will, then in your will, you would write, I want it to go here. If you can control it by putting it into your own trust, fine. But if there are rules and regulations in the syndication or any other operating document that limit what you can do and say, well, you know, you've got to sell it back to the syndication or you have to turn it in you know, for redemption or, you know, who knows what, whatever it is, you should understand that and know how that asset can be controlled if you pass away or even if you become disabled. But more importantly, if you pass away, where does it go and how do I control it? And you may have to look at a lot of operating agreements and other documents to understand that. So that's the most important thing. It's really basic. It's really simple. It's really not hard. You can ask the person in charge of the, you know, the administration of whatever it is you're investing in. What happens if I die? Where does this thing go? And they'll say, well, you know, pursuant to paragraph B, it goes pursuant to your will. Got it. Very good. All right. Well, this has been very informative and uh, will hopefully give people a little kick in the booty to get it done if they haven't done it yet. Mm-hmm. 
Well, thank you so much for joining us on The Real Well Show and sharing some of your wisdom. Okay. Well, thank you. And uh, if you have any other questions down the road, feel free to call me. And I, uh, again, thank you for inviting me to, uh, to talk with you and your audience today. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can listen to this and any past episodes at realwealthshow.com. And if you'd like to build an empire so that you have something to put in your trust or will, come join us on February 9th in Tampa for our third annual East Coast Income Property Showcase. I'll be giving my 2019 housing forecast and my husband and co-CEO Rich Fetke will be giving his focused investor tips for the year. Plus, we'll have all 13 of our preferred property providers flying out to the event to tell you what's happening in their markets. You can get the details at realwealthshow.com. Just click on the Learn tab and look for the drop down for events. I hope to see you there. Have a wonderful rest of your week. Bye-bye.